Hello, and you're listening to Conquering Chaos and Mayhem. I'm today's moderator, Breck Lover, and it's my pleasure to introduce the host of Conquering Chaos and Mayhem, Daryl Cully. Daryl, how are you today? I'm awesome, Brett. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Good to hear. We've got a really interesting guest lined up for Conquering Chaos and Mayhem today. Author, lecturer, teacher, and expert in emergency management, Mr. Alain Normand. Alain, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Not a problem. Daryl, I'll throw it to you and enjoy what I'm sure will be a very interesting conversation. Uh, again, welcome, Alain. Um, one of the, the, the cool things about Alain is he is known worldwide. I was... <laughs> Uh, a, a quick story. I was on the phone with a, a client in Europe, and we were talking about um, uh, different things that were going on in, in Canada. And uh, we'd just done a major exercise for Brampton. And uh, I was talking about that, and they were like, oh, you know Alan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, uh, he's got a reputation that precedes him, um, not a just across Canada, but uh, around the world for for his expertise um, and some of the really innovative things that you've done in the past. But today, we have the opportunity to talk about your most recent um, venture, adventure. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you you you've officially retired or or semi retired. Um, from the from the city of Brampton, but of course you're continuing in teaching and consulting, and but you made an amazing trip to the Ukraine. Yes, and, I did. So, yeah. So, so uh, just to, to clarify, if you want, I, I retired from the city of Brampton as the emergency manager there for over 22 years. Uh, that that happened about uh, almost two years ago now. Uh, but uh, I kept busy in all sorts of things, and, and I'm you know, involved with uh, a number of organizations. I'm a Red Cross volunteer as well, and I do consulting and teaching and, and uh, you know, so all sorts of things regularly. And, and one of the, the things that I was, I was doing some work with ADRA Canada. So ADRA is, stands for Adventist Development and Relief Agency, and they are a humanitarian aid organization uh, affiliated to the Adventist Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, so I've been with them actually for quite a few years uh, on a part-time basis, just here and there. Once in a while, they deployed me to places where they needed help. And then, of course, with the Ukraine situation, uh, they needed people that had some expertise, and and they so they called on me. Uh, what, what they they needed was really somebody that had a lot of uh, coordination and logistics uh, support. The role that ADRA was playing in Ukraine was uh, the in-kind donation management, mostly in-kind, but also and also some money, some financial, but but mostly in-kind. So they were receiving goods, mostly food, but also a few other things. They were getting uh, from other countries around Ukraine. So uh, you had Bulgaria, Romania, Poland. Uh, a few other, even Germany, uh, Belgium were sending things. They were all sending truckloads of food in particular to uh, the, to Ukraine. And then uh, the people in Ukraine was getting the, this food and they had to redistribute to uh, you know all the places where they had people either in shelters, uh, evacuated, or even people who were on the front line but couldn't leave for some reason. So, so they, but they were not really prepared for that. 
They were a bit disorganized. They had a very small team. Uh, ADRA had a, a chapter in Ukraine, but it, it had about maybe six people. Uh, and, and this was, of course, a huge undertaking. There's no way six people could really do this. So uh, ADRA has a, a, an international facet. And uh, so the ADRA International called on the various countries to say, we need help in Ukraine. And uh, so the Canadian chapter, which is actually located uh, near Oshawa uh, in Ontario, and um, they, they said, well, the person that we've got, you know, is I, you know, are you available? And of course, that happened right not, not too long after my retirement. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm there. But, no, it's no problem. So they, uh, they uh, planned to deploy me. So this, this the, you know, the conflict in Ukraine started in February. And uh, they, they scrambled what they could for a while. And uh, I was called to, to go there and in May of uh, 20, 2022. Uh, I went to, to, you know, I was sent there. And it's funny because they, they put me on standby a couple of weeks before that. They said, okay, hold on. We're going to get everything ready for you and we'll call you. And then they call me on a Friday afternoon and they say, we need you on the plane on Monday. <laughs> not a lot of time to <laughs> get organized not only that but i had to go we were still in the covid situation so i had to go and get a covid test because the airline wouldn't let me on if i didn't have a negative uh, covid test so i had to scramble to get you know a clinic in brampton to to do the test and give me the results before i left so it worked out we got it and i was on the plane on the monday and uh, off to, to Ukraine, and I stayed there for six weeks. And uh, my my mandate, if you want, was to help them organize a system to do this distribution of food and, and goods, uh, because they were basically getting pallets full of you know pallet of rice, pallet of uh, pasta, pallet of, you know canned goods, whatever, and uh, they they were really not sure how to organize it and all that so what we did is we brought in some volunteers and we started organizing meal plans we had uh, boxes we got some boxes and we had boxes where we filled and, and each box had the same kind of thing and we had actually a nutritionist who had calculated you know what should be in those boxes in order for uh, you know uh, we were aiming for meal plans for families of four uh for a week a week at a time and so what how much calories and what what should you have in there? So we were based on what we, of course, the food that we were receiving, we planned the meal plans like that. So we got volunteers and we had a whole system to prepare the boxes. We put the boxes and and that was what was going on the pallets that would go in the trucks to be delivered to the shelters or the the what we call the hotspots. Uh, and so so that was a big part of the program was to get that stuck. But not only that, but those donations, that food donation and the money to, to make it happen came from all sorts of different countries. And of course, uh, you know, it was great that the governments of all these countries were giving away money to buy food and to give. To, but there's an accountability. They wanted to know where is that going? You know, and at the time when they, they, would, they started all of that, there was really no way to know where everything was going. There was no paperwork. There's basically... You know, they had a few uh, delivery slips from the from the, the driver of the truck that said, this is what we're giving you, but where did it go after that? You know, so 
one of the key things we had to do was to make sure that we were demonstrated that we were accountable, you know, and we were able to determine exactly where everything we received, where it went. We had to show that this was not to be used by staff or volunteers or people or, or, or our friends. This went to the, the, the survivors from the, the conflict that they needed. So we had to set up a, a really very rigorous system to be able to track all that with inventories, delivery slips, uh, you know, and, and having double signatures on all the papers and all of that. So, so you can imagine, uh, you know, starting from scratch, really, because they had they had nothing. We had to set that up. Now, Adra had already some of the systems, uh, but we had to to update them and adjust them for the situation there. And uh, of course, we had then to translate. We had to, you know, most most of the stuff that Adra had was in English. But we had to translate it in Ukrainian and Russian because, and by the, they, they use both languages depending on where they are. The people that are closer to the Russian border tend to speak more Russian. People that are further in into the country speak more Ukrainian. So depending on who is going to work with this, we have to have all of these forms, these procedures, these protocols in both languages, in both Ukrainian and Russian. And we had it in English, of course, uh, as well. So uh, that was, uh, you know, the most of the work that I did during those six weeks was to do that and then to train the people. Because our goal was not to be there for the long term. Our goal was to help them set it up and then let the Ukrainian people on site continue the work and, and, and take it over and do it themselves. We, it's, it's the old... You know, give a man a fish and you, you feed him for a day, you teach him to fish, you feed him forever. Uh, so so that, that was the principle. We weren't there to, to do the work for them. We were there to help them set up the system so that they could do the work going forward. And I, I'm proud to say that after six weeks when I left, we had a system organized, structured. The people were trained. They knew how to do it. And they were able to send reports on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, we get reports of everything, what we received, how it was managed, and where it went. Uh, so that that really was my mandate. That's why it's more logistical aspect, not as as sexy or attractive as some of the other work, but but very important. You know? So so Adra got the, got a lot of money actually from the Canadian government. Uh, you know the way. Maybe I, I can also explain something. Most people don't know how it works. You know, the Prime Minister Trudeau says we're going to give so many million dollars to Ukraine for the for the relief effort. You know, and everybody thinks that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau just signs a check and sends it out, and that's it. But that's not the way it really works. The way it works is that uh, agencies that do various kind of disaster relief work apply to the federal government to be able to do a project and have that project funded by the government using that money that was promised by prime minister. So we, so ADRA applied for money from that fund uh, in order to be able to provide the kinds of services that I just explained, you know, to, to in Ukraine. Uh, and the federal government, I, I think it was $12 million that ADRA got from the federal government to do this. And again, the, the, the auditors from the federal government, they want to see paperwork. They want to see, you know, what did we do with that $12 million? You know, And so, so it was important for us to show all of that. 
so we did and uh we 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 had very good systems but then then after that of course they needed people and they needed people with that expertise and that's why you know i i myself uh had uh, the opportunity to go there and i wasn't alone because we had actually a team we we were six six of us uh we had people from uh, a person from australia one from new zealand one from sri lanka uh one from the u.s I forget it was not one, one one other place oh one from germany and, and then myself so it was an international kept very busy in fact weren't you oh, Oh yeah, we were absolutely well because there was other. I was in charge of the logistics part, but there was other things as well. So you had they had, like I said, they started. They had six staff. Well, you can't run an operation of that magnitude with six people. So no, they had I to imagine you would, Daryl. Have you ever worked with uh, such a limited amount of staff in your time? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when we were dealing with um, small remote First Nations, um, yeah. That that's all you've got. Uh, you know, fortunately, when you're dealing with more urban areas, you've got uh, resources to call upon. But getting people to volunteer to go to a war zone, yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that's a different that's a different issue, isn't it? Is. It? it is. Yeah. You know, I I did, I did interrupt you guys there, Daryl. I, I imagine no. you had some questions. I apologize. Go ahead. So so, Alan, um, what is the what is the big need um, in Ukraine for the citizens at this moment? I, I think they're, they're doing better now because, you know, I mean, we're, we're not the only agencies that was there, the, you know, the Red Cross, uh, World, you know, all sorts of different organizations were there. We'll, we'll fund the, we'll uh, forget the green, the food grains was there. Uh, so there was a lot of organizations involved there uh, to the point that we actually had to sort of uh, assign cities uh, to each organization so that we weren't duplicating the work that we were doing also every agency was assigned a certain number of cities and that's that's where you're going to work with and uh so so you know, we weren't stepping on each other so so there's a lot of things and it's getting better uh you know i mean what i think we're, we're getting into the stage now where what they're going to need is they're going to need a lot of uh, trauma support trauma counseling as you know so if there's organizations out there that have Psychologists, uh, people can you know people that are in counseling. Uh, we, we have a lot of uh, our uh, church pastors that are uh, ready to to help out in various ways. We do send teams of uh, you know spiritual and and emotional comfort, and this is a multi-denominational. So when we send somebody there, it's not to preach one religion or another. It's it's to provide the emotional support that they need. And even if they want spiritual support, we can give it, but we give it without any denominational criteria, if you want. It's, it's right. you know, whatever so, you believe, you know, yeah. You, you've got years of domestic experience here in Canada, <laughs> yeah. and then all of a sudden you're thrown into a war zone, um, you know, an ocean away. Uh, what, what were the skill sets that you had learned here? Um, that were most applicable there? Well, it, it's interesting because a, a lot of what I, we do in, in disaster management, disaster and emergency management, uh, is fairly similar. I mean, the, the, the food donations and the, the, the logistics aspect of that, I've done here in, Canada in all sorts of ways, you know, in, in various situations, uh, coordinating. Uh, so that that wasn't new. What was, was is, is that external experience 
first we had we were dealing with people who had you no know, so we, we were hiring people to do this and we were actually hiring people that were uh, evacuated from uh you know war zones so the what happened then now is that we we had people who had already uh they, they were sort of traumatized a bit themselves and all that but also uh they were doing it how could i say you know volunteers generally want to do what they want to help and, and that's great but they usually help a bit remotely they're not necessarily directly affected themselves so th there's not an emotional tie as strong when when they're they're doing the work of a volunteer but here we were dealing with people it was their own country their own land their own people that were being affected so there was a, a strong emotional tie and the people that wanted that were there to volunteer they wanted to do this they are they they really cared for what was going to happen and and they were extremely grateful for the work that we were doing, that that international team, we were coming from all over the world to, to support them, to help them. They were extremely grateful. So there's the, I think the, the main difference that I saw there is, is that emotional tie to the work that was being done, uh, which I haven't, I hadn't really encountered that before. We use IMS, ICS here, um, Incident Command. Um, is that uh, a system that is used in um, in this area? Was and yeah. or what system is it? <laughs> so so because uh, so Andra you know does use Andra is, is mostly U.S. based and we have a strong component in Canada. So because we we uh, we we are all using IMS in, in Canada U.S. and so. ADRA itself was using IMS, and I know some of the other agencies that were there are also using IMS. The Red Cross was there, and they're using it. So, so the agencies that were deployed there used it, and we trained the people that we were hiring and we were working with us in at least a, a, a basic IMS, you know, understanding. And, and but we had then we had to adjust it because, of course, IMS has a basic structure for response, but then. You have to, to play around with some of the, the positions and all that in order to make it fit the scenario that you're working with. So we did. So we had, a, um, if you want, we had a modified IMS structure. As a lot, a lot of the work was actually on logistics, uh, a little bit on administration and finance. Uh, the planning itself, you know, once once the plan was developed, that was it. It was it, it wasn't something that was going to modify very much from day to day. And then the operation was really uh, mostly to be able to to deliver the trucks to the right locations and uh, you know with the food on them. So it, it was a, you know not a huge amount. The, the the interesting part of the operation actually is that we had to have uh, extensive daily communication with the people in in the hotspots. So when I'm talking hotspots, is all those areas where there was risk, there were conflicts, there were snipers, there were uh, you know. Uh, so, so the people we were sending drivers in areas where we were actually putting them at risk. <clears throat> we actually equipped them with uh, fire uh, bulletproof vests, helmets. Uh, we had a special trauma kits in case they get they get hurt, they get hit by a bullet. We had all sorts of things. You know, very different mindset. When I go in a disaster zone, I don't expect to be shot at. <laughs> but here. 
That was the expectation. So we had to make that. And then we had to be in communication. So not me, because I don't speak Ukrainian, but we had people who their role was to communicate daily with the people on the ground. So the, the mayors of those communities where we're going, the military uh, agencies that were on site, you know, just to be able to say, can we send the truck or not? You know, and where do we send it and where do we position it? And and then it was up to the mayor and, and, and or the people in the area to, to get the word out so that people could come and pick up the, the goods and then go back home. Uh, so a lot of communication aspect on that, uh, uh, you know, in order to make sure that we weren't sending. And we actually had twice that we had to actually stop the trucks and say, we just got noticed that there's sniper snipers in that area. Uh, stop. Don't go. Wait for instructions. And then uh, they would be redirected. They were redirected to another location. Uh, and then the people on the ground knew that, well, okay, we've changed location that we're going to wherever, you know, point X for drop off. And we're doing it, that. It, quite a challenge for people in need. Not only are they, they in need of food and power and water and, and all of the, the, the necessities of life, but when you go to give it to them, their lives, as well as the lives of the, the people delivering it, are at risk. Exactly. That's where it's very different from most disasters. You know, you, you go to a flood, you know where the flood zone is. Once the flood, the, the waters recede, now you can help people. But you know, where, you know exactly where you're going, and it's going to be always the same place. And people aren't afraid to go there because it's a safe area. Uh, in, a, in a war zone, that doesn't apply. You, you have to be extremely flexible you know because from day to day the situation changed the map was changing you know constantly you know uh, so russian forces were coming in ukrainian forces were pushing them back so so, so the map was, was being modified on a daily basis we had to be very much aware of that uh, so, so very different from disaster zones i've done tons of tons of disaster zones and rarely i mean in a forest fire you might have to change your location here and there because the wind going to change the direction of the fire but typically you know you set up and you're there for, for the duration people may be listening in from around the world um wanting to help yeah. how can they help what is what is the best way that people can support um the the people who are um being impacted and um, struggling in these these situations right and so the the the, the quick answer is that the, the best help is always money uh because transporting goods uh you know is is complex you've got all sorts of verification you've got food food inspections you know public health inspections you've got uh, customs inspections you've got it, you know so trying to send goods from outside i mean we had to go the, the trucks that we were getting from from poland romania bulgaria germany uh they had to go through all sorts of inspections before they were able to go through the border to get into ukraine so even that sometimes it took a couple of days to get a truck through uh because you had to have all this paperwork so you know but money is easy to handle it's easy to transfer you know, and and it can go directly in pot the other advantage with money is that if you give money to people uh, they will spend it inside that that community where they live or where, where they are if, if they're evacuated where they have been evacuated they'll be able to spend that money right there which means it's going to help the local economy 
And right now, the local economy needs all the help it can get. You know, they, they, they lost so much. A lot of businesses had to close. A lot of uh, people were unemployed uh, because of uh, the conflict. So the more money that flows into the country and then stays around the country, the better it's going to help them to recover and, and get back on their feet. Uh, even, and, and this is not right now. The conflict isn't over. Of course, it's still still happening. But even after the conflict is over, they'll need that to be able to rebuild and restart and get get going again. And, uh, so so yeah. So money is the best. So one of the things um, that comes up every single crisis, um, including you know, local tornado we had in Barrie, is there are people out there. I hate to say it, scamming and, and oh, trying yeah. to get, get their part of the money. How, if people want to donate, how do they ensure that it's going to an organization that is going to um, get those funds and the resources that are needed and that right. it's legitimate? Yeah. And, and, and so the, the, the answer is really is that you have to go through a recognized organization, you know, an organization that you are sure has been so there are a number of them out there uh you know world vision uh for example uh save the children uh you have uh, you know red cross definitely uh but so so search for an organization that is recognized that is you know not a, a fly-by-night kind of thing that's it don't i i uh, always say don't use the gofundme you know it's it's a nice idea and all that, but but you don't know who's going to be at the other end and what they're going to do with that money. So I I caution people not to go to the GoFundMe kind of situation, you know, uh, options. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, the I, and I've heard over the years I've heard people say, well, well, you know, I'm not giving to the Red Cross because the Red Cross they keep the money and there's there's a huge administrative fee and 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 the reality is that that's a myth. You know, um, the reality is that the Red Cross has a total different stream of funding fundraising for the administration. When there is money given to uh, to go for a disaster, that money goes almost 100 percent to uh, the, the, the the survivors, the, the you know the people that have been affected directly. And I can speak for Adra; it's the same thing. We have a very strict. See, Adra uh, is because it's a faith-based organization. It's actually uh, the, the, the administrative costs are covered by donations from the members of the church. So all the members, we get we get appeals at the church, at the Seventh-day Adventist church. We get appeals on a regular basis for, for money to go to ADRA, and that's what covers the administrative. So when we go into response into a disaster, uh, there is no money, none of that money that we receive, whether it's the government funding or it's private funding, there's none of that money that goes to cover the administration. All the money goes directly to the people affected. Uh, but again, this is because these are organizations that are structured, that are already there, they, they, and they don't do just one disaster. They do all of them you know, every time something happens. And, and so that's what I caution people to go, go for something that you, you're sure of. You know, and, and I speak for ADRA, I speak for the Red Cross and other, but there's there's others out there. There's all sorts of groups that are there that are very good, but make sure you check them. Go check their website, check the, their conventions before you're ready to give that money. As emergency managers, um, we we know it, it starts with the heart, right? That's why you get into the business to begin oh, with. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure you've got your go bag ready. 
for the <laughs> incident and um, and deployment. If someone is interested in doing an international deployment like this, or even a domestic deployment to a major event, um, give us very briefly what they should do to to be prepared and um, to make themselves available for such a deployment. Again, here, uh, those agencies will want to send people that they they know and that they have, uh, they're sure that they're going to be useful. I've seen groups of people go up. I remember the, the, uh, the Haiti earthquake where people yes. just picked up and left and went to Haiti and said, I want to help, uh, and then arrived in Haiti uh, wanting to help with actually no idea what they were going to do. And uh, now they became, uh, actually, they become a, a, a problem because, you know, where do you lodge them? How do you feed them? Uh, you know, food, water, and all that. And and in conditions which were actually, they were getting in danger because there's cholera outbreaks, uh, and, and they were not vaccinated necessarily for, for those things. And so so you, you don't want to go unless you're set officially. But the agencies that work on the ground will only send you if they are sure that you are the person that can do the work for them, you know, that that's what's needed. So it it's not at the moment of an emergency that you have to go or, and, and offer help. It's way before. You have to go and register with an agency, say, I want to be involved in your next disaster. Uh, here's my skill set. They'll, they'll ask you all sorts of questions about, you know, what kind of experience you have, what can you bring to the table, and and come go through that process. And there has to be appropriate training. And so it's, exactly. it, it's not just, hey, I'm going to jump on a flight and arrive there. And because, like you said, you're, you can be more of a burden then you are a benefit. So exactly. Uh, so join the organizations early. Yeah. Make content known and, and be prepared. Uh, if we if we post uh, some names of uh, agencies and organizations currently working in in, uh, in Ukraine now, the other thing is that uh, there's a lot of agencies that may not be as well known. One of the things I say to people because you know, I mean. I talk for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that's one one faith-based organization. But there's a lot of different faith-based groups out there that have a disaster response role, and they have an organization which is affiliated to that church. You know, you take the Mennonite Disaster Services. Well, that's the Mennonite Church. You know, you take World Renew, and that's the the, uh, the Pentecostal, I think. Uh, so, so you have different groups out there. So if you belong to a faith-based organization of so you you attend you know church mosque whatever uh find out are they doing anything do they have an agency affiliated with them uh you know that the, uh so for example the the Sikh organization Sikh community has a Khalsa Aid Khalsa Aid is a fantastic organization uh and it's organized it's done primarily through the Sikh community uh, and they do work all around the world as well. In the same way. And they, they're faith-based somewhat because they're affiliated with the Sikh religion. But they do fantastic work. So if you're a Sikh person and you don't feel comfortable going to you know, a, a Christian uh, 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 organization, then look, look up. And, and the same goes for any other uh, you know, community, any other uh, religious uh, groups. Uh, find out what, what's in your neck of the room.
That's the idea. And Len, you did amazing work for the city of Brampton in bringing faith groups of all types together to provide uh, community uh, support in the event of a disaster. And that, that program is an example for that should be used by municipalities um, all over. So um, I would encourage any emergency managers on the municipal side, um, give Brampton, give the city of Brampton a call, their emergency management uh, <laughs> office, and, and ask, uh, because Alain spent many years um, developing yeah, yeah. This, this program, and it, it's, it's one of your legacies. It is. We called it the Lighthouse Program, basically. Churches, mosques, temples, gurdwaras, whatever they were, became the lighthouse for uh, an area in case of an emergency. We had negotiated agreements with the, all of these faith-based leaders that they would open their doors in an emergency for people in the neighborhood to come in, regardless of the religion, had nothing to do with religion, it had to be the fact that they had a building, a facility, and they could provide shelter and care for the people there. Uh, and they were connected with us so that they'd have communication uh, on a regular basis about what was going on with the situation, whatever incident they were dealing with. So, and we did that. We actually did a couple of uh, open door events because we, we felt that there was a bit of a stigma. You know, if, you, if you're a Christian and you've never been in a Muslim temple, uh, how are you going to feel about going into there when there's a disaster? So what we did is we organized some open doors so that people could go in and see what is a Muslim temple if you're a Christian, you know, or vice versa? What's in a church, uh, you know, a, a Catholic church if you're a Muslim uh, or a Sikh and all that? So we, we, we organized that. We had people from those neighborhoods invited to come in, come and take a look, come and meet us, come and talk to us. And uh, we did get a lot of good feedback on that because it really broke down some of those barriers that you know, they're, they're, they're subconscious, but they're there. You know. It's all about people serving people. That's what it is, yeah. So thank you, Alain. Um, our, our time has come to an end. We look forward to hearing about your next adventure. Um, <laughs> I would love to have you back. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your schedule and joining us and, and sharing about your, uh, your adventures in the Ukraine. Um, thank you to our listeners. And uh, thank you to Brett. And uh, we look forward to having you join us on our, our next podcast. Thanks for having me. And on behalf of our host, Daryl Colley, I am Breck Lover for Conquering Chaos and Mayhem. Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>